choices shape the market, our society, and our quality of life. That's why EuroConsumers helps millions of people in their daily choices, providing simple solutions to complex problems. EuroConsumers is a cluster of organizations, a network of people, a group established to protect consumer rights and well-being that brings consumers and companies together in transparent relationships of trust that respect their independence. Our deep understanding of products and consumption gives consumers a credible expert voice worldwide. We bridge the gap between buyers and manufacturers, between supply and demand. And in this digital age, we create opportunities for all parties to come together in constructive dialogue, partnering to build a future of better products and services. EuroConsumers has the power of a global group that believes humanity can develop, grow and change for the better and that we can promote this by uniting millions of consumers in strength and speaking responsibly for them while simultaneously engaging in relationships of trust with responsible, sustainable companies. chat or cheating change and chaos my name is liz cole and i'm your moderator today and hello to everyone watching start talking live and for those watching or listening to a recording we had almost a thousand people sign up which we're really excited about and i can see from some of the chat that you're from all over the world from the us south africa india so welcome everybody we're really great to be here with you so Euro consumers will be live tweeting this webinar. If you want to join in, you can use the hashtag start talking and also make sure to follow the account at Euroconsumers on Twitter and LinkedIn so you can keep up with all our other activities as well. If you're watching on YouTube and LinkedIn, you can also share the live stream. So everybody seems to be fascinated by ChatGPT. It's the latest impressive iteration in what machine learning can do. It can deliver convincing and natural sounding responses to questions. And since OpenAI released ChatGPT in November 2022, we've seen a series of other large language models like that being released by Google, Meta, Alibaba, and they're all promising to be a revolution in technology. So they join this set of technologies, which we might call generative um, or creative or general purpose AIs. So they're a form of very advanced artificial intelligence, which can create its own images, text, speech, music and search, etc. We think the possibilities could be endless, not just for obvious use cases like chatbots or generating articles, but for things maybe like writing code or developing medicines or even creating a feature film. But what risks do these kinds of things pose? Will we see deep fakes scamming consumers? Will students just be churning out essays faked by machine? Do we face a future when nobody can really tell what's real or not? And does that matter? Well, I'm here today to discuss all of these questions with a really fantastic and well-informed panel. So it's my pleasure to start to introduce them to you. First of all, we have Colin Strong, 
Colin is the head of behavioral science, an expert in consumer behavior at Ipsos Global. He's the author of Human Data, and he writes a lot about how consumers respond and adapt to the technology in the world today, and on the nature of knowledge, belief, and information in the digitalized society. He also publishes a weekly blog, blog called Frontline BSI, I hope I pronounced that right, which is well worth a read. The welcome, Colin. Um, next up, we have Cornelia Kutera, who's Senior Director at Microsoft. Microsoft's release of ChatGPT in partnership with OpenAI and then its subsequent incorporation into Bing Search has caught everyone's imagination. So we're really delighted to have Cornelia with us here today. Although we will, of course, be talking about other versions of these large language models and other types of generative AI. Next up, we've got Alexander Brezar. He's a journalist and editor at Euronews. He started out his career as a TV reporter and Brussels correspondent for Bosnia's national public broadcaster. He's also written with op-eds for The Washington Post and The Guardian. And in a world where online facts have become a battleground, he's received awards for his work on fact-checking. Next up, we have Gabriel Mazzini. He's team leader for the Artificial Intelligence Act at the European Commission. He's been with the Commission since 2017, focusing on all the legal and policy questions that are thrown up by new technologies. And as his job title suggests, he's heavily involved in the development of the AI Act. Next, we have Daniel Lufer. He's a senior policy analyst at the global digital rights organization, Access Now. He's based in their Brussels office, and he focuses very much on the impact of, a of emerging tech like AI on digital rights, on societies, on consumers and citizens. So welcome, Daniel. And we also are really pleased to have joining and contributing via a video pre-record, Brando Benifai, who's a member of the European Parliament and he has been since 2014. And he's the joint lead negotiator of the EU's AI Act. There's a major piece of legislation which is setting out to both protect consumers and citizens and stimulate innovation in AI in Europe. And we can talk later about whether that's possible. And of course, we welcome you, everybody watching and listening, and we invite you all to make comments and questions. As I say, there's an awful lot of you today, which is fantastic, but we can't promise that we'll be able to get all of the get to all of your comments and questions. Okay, so let's get started. Um, what do we think? What is this chat GPT and types of technology like that? Is it just the latest hype or are we at a point of return for general purpose generative AI? That's the question that I asked Brando Benife and we're going to go now to hear his take on that. Dear all, I'm sorry I cannot participate in person with you, but I'm very pleased to have the opportunity to address you with this video message. These are crucial weeks for the negotiations on the AI Act, with several open issues still to be closed, in order to be able to present a solid position and start the trilogues around April. As we all know, artificial intelligence is a revolutionary technology whose applications could potentially disrupt the lives of citizens, the organization of work, and even democratic institutional arrangements. What makes it particularly difficult to regulate is the unpredictability of certain open applications of which we can only see some aspects today but of which we are unable to fully anticipate uh, future evolutions. Here in recent weeks we have touched upon a piece of the future. The arrival of the first AI technologies that are highly functional, easy to use and within everyone's reach made us wake up from our chairs. 
And while we are already imagining a Marvel-esque future with an AI along the lines of Iron Man's Jarvis, it's also easy to foresee and directly experience the risks to society and democracy. In the last few months alone, for instance, we have seen the spread of technologies that create deepfake videos from a simple image, fake audio from a few seconds of speech, works of art created in the style of unsuspecting artists, realistic photos created from a simple request, and lastly, ChatGPT. If until yesterday chatbots seemed sometimes stupid and harmless to us, today they churn out poems, newspaper articles, and strategic business plans. We should not be fooled by its name. ChatGPT is not a simple chatbot, which we now assume to be low risk, with only obligations for transparency about its origin. It's perhaps a first glimpse of what we may have in the future with the achievement of a general purpose AI capable of performing various tasks, just like a human being. Thanks very much, Brando. Um, Alexander, I'm going to turn to you first. So do you think we can actually predict whether this is a truly revolutionary step or not? Uh, sure thing. Uh, well, depends, of course, who you ask. Um, to, to be perfectly frank, I think when it comes to ChatGPT, and not just ChatGPT, but AI in general, um, I think we forget that we're already using all kinds of technological uh, technological advances to help us in our in our particular line of work. I mean, as a journalist, obviously, uh, to me, uh, ChatGPT is, is, is poses quite an interesting question of of whether I will be replaced by a machine at some point, and I can argue why I will not. In fact, or any of my almost any of my colleagues be ever replaced by by AI or or or, or you know any kind of a chat GPT uh, copy or what have you. Um, but it, it does it is important to say that we do use uh, things like Google everyday Google Maps, some most of their pro products Google Translate um, to better inform ourselves. And, and, and in a, in a sense, uh, chat GPT. Uh, can help us in a similar way. Maybe it can serve as, as some sort of a aid or a shortcut in the, in the line of work that we're in. At the same time, um, there are people who, uh, in, again, in my line of work in journalism, who do believe that uh, the future lies in AI and ChatGPT and that these kinds of products will replace journalists. I mean, one of them, one of the most prominent ones is obviously the uh, CEO of Axel Springer, um, all of you are familiar with Axel Springer and what they do, and especially those who live in Brussels are fully familiar with Politico, which is one of their one of their outlets. And he recently said in, in, in emails that are internal that were leaked that uh, he's looking to uh, you know cut his staff uh, and replace it with some sort of AI. Whether that will be successful or not, we'll see, and we can discuss that further. But um, I'm not sure I offered a, a complete answer to your question or just like muddy the water any further, <laughs> muddy the waters for you. But um, uh, let's leave it here for now and then we can come back. Leave to it there for now. Yeah, I think that no problem. Yeah, difficult. So it's a topic it's sometimes difficult to get the really clear answers on straight away, but we'll carry on talking. Gabriella, you've been involved with developing the AI Act, it's the first of its kind in the world. Um, what types of products and systems might be using these kind of generative creative types of AI? Would they be standalone or embedded? Um, yes, thanks, Liz. Um, yeah, certainly when we're talking about, I mean, I would say the model that underlies 
ChatGPT. ChatGPT is certainly, as we mentioned before, more of a chatbot that indeed is very powerful, but it's a chatbot. I mean, but the core, I would say, the core of the product is the model, is the model that is behind. And then it's a language model. It's a very powerful language model. And language models also has been around, have been around for a long time. And certainly they are integrated in a variety of products. So uh, to get back to your question, certainly now here we see the emergency of so powerful models that indeed it's not just OpenAI, but also other companies that may lead to certain specific uh, risks because of their capabilities, including emergent capabilities. Um, and as all previous language models can have been integrated, can be integrated in, in other products, so can happen also with this type of um, more powerful, I would say, uh, models. And we'll go, we'll get to this a bit um, more in detail later, perhaps. But um, when we when we drafted the AI, we certainly had in mind this concept of generative AI, and we dedicated specific provisions on that. Um, now, but but certainly now we are seeing a bit an emergency of, I would say, even more powerful model that perhaps mm -hmm. uh, deserve it, as as we mentioned before by by Mr. Benifei, some some further reflections. Sure. Thanks very much. Um, Colin, Brando said in that clip that things like ChatGPT have made people wake up from their chairs. Um, what is it, do you think, that's really captured the imagination? It's a tricky one, isn't it? Because I, I, um, we see sort of some technology come in which we think, oh, that looks interesting and, uh, and, and it sort of arrives with a bit of a fanfare. But then somehow it doesn't gain the excitement um, in the wider population which you might might expect it to. So sometimes this is one of these things where it can feel a little bit like crystal ball gazing to try and sort of work out, well, when is it something going to capture people's imagination and everyone's going to get excited about and when and when are they not? And, um, uh, and, and look, history sort of littered with examples of technologies which we think are going to sort of take off. You know, look at the look at the sort of stages in the development of the light bulb and I was doing a little bit of um, uh, research this morning to say well surely it's Thomas Edison but actually before then there was Alessandro Volta, there was Humphrey Davy, there was James Bowen Lindsay, we'd all produced the versions of this stuff beforehand and um, I'm not quite sure what the reaction was at the time in back in the 19th century but you know the point is is that in a way it's um uh you know all of these things are kind of setting the scene a little bit and and perhaps um are, are, are all seeking to meet a need but then there's a certain thing at a certain point then just somehow connects and all the ripples kind of move out from this thing and perhaps sometimes it's not just about the technology, but it's the systems they're going into, the people, the culture, society, the, the set of needs that everybody suddenly think, aha, you know, I can see how this can work. I can see yeah. the, uh, application for me in this. And I think there's an element here of that. That's what's driving this kind of this, this point where people can kind of suddenly see very tangibly how it can change things for them in their lives. Okay, thanks, Colin. That's interesting. I'm, I was just thinking then, if this had been released just as a pandemic started, whether that it would be meeting that need for people to have a conversation with somebody. But anyway, um, yeah, Daniel, yeah. you've been Daniel. Just to turn to you now, you've followed lots of technical logical developments, at, particularly in AI, for a long time. You've written also about mythology and things like that around the way we think about this kind of tech. 
But so interested in your take, is this another step forward, or just another small step forward or a giant leap into the unknown? Where do you think we are? Uh, yeah, and just thanks, uh, first of all, for inviting me here. Uh, very happy to, to be on this panel today. Um, yeah, it's funny. I actually went back to an essay I wrote about GPT-2 in 2020. It's funny to read. It was I would actually still stand by it, uh, which maybe answers the question in that uh, it was a quite a critical essay. Uh, that the it, it's a, it's I think technologically it's there hasn't been a huge leap, but as many of the other panelists have said, uh, it's somehow just you know hit the tinderbox and it really took off and. I think many of us who've been working on large language models, uh, you know, to varying degrees for years have been quite exhausted and excited the last while because you can finally explain to people uh, what you work on. People uh, kind of have much more of an idea. I think it's it's very tangible for a lot of people in the way that developments in AI haven't been up to this point. So I think ChatGPT in itself, you know, is is impressive and I was impressed by it uh, as a kind of a hardened skeptic but <laughs> I do think that the the bar that I was judging it against was was very low and the bar that it's being you know judged by publicly is, is extremely high and I think is going to lead to and has already started to lead to a lot of disappointment you know the the classic one is uh, I've heard stories about people coming into libraries asking for books uh, and they don't exist because they got recommendations from ChatGPT uh, because it just makes up references and, and you know isn't grounded in in any kind of facts. Um, I do think that the the giant leap into the unknown um, is probably going to come with the search integration, which I'm sure we'll we'll get to. And uh, as you did too, Liz, I uh, got to try out. The, the new Bing in the last couple of days and uh, impressive work going into it. But uh, I think there are absolutely formidable challenges in okay. getting large language models to be effective and safe as search interfaces. Yeah, we're going to talk about that in the next section. I think now is a really good time to turn to you, Cornelia, part of Microsoft and OpenAI. So let's go, maybe go back a step and can you tell us what is ChatGP and also what, what it isn't um, and how is it being rolled out and used now? Can you tell us a bit about that, please? First of all, uh, also thank you very much for inviting me uh, to this webinar. Just to clarify, I'm part of Microsoft uh, and not OpenAI. Uh, Microsoft and OpenAI have a collaboration, um, uh, which we can go into a little bit more detail later on eventually. Um, so we, we do believe there is an inflection point uh, in AI because it is now so accessible to the broader uh, public and society at large. So chatbots have been around for a while, but ChatGPT um, and, and ChatGPT is basically a chatbot. Uh, developed by OpenAI uh, based on their uh, large language models. And the way it works is that it is a web interface that allows everybody to communicate and ask the questions and the prompts. Um, and um, the the creativity and, and the opportunities that 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 are there, I think that has really like um, 
spark the imagination and gives us a little bit of glimpse of the future that we are seeing. And I personally use it. Um, I, um, Daniel, I'm not sure you already received it, but I use, you know, I wrote my invitation this, save the date. Um, and that, that actually not with chat GPT, but with Bing chat, um, save the date for my next data science and law forum. Um, entirely with uh, Bing Chat. And so that was very quick. So it's an assistive um, tool that people store to understand how to use and how to be more productive, more creative, uh, enable critical thinking. So I think we are, we are, we are super excited um, and uh, happy to explain a little bit more on how it's integrated in Bing. Yeah, could you yeah, could you tell us a little bit more about that? And I mean, because I think that's the most that's the use case that's very easy to grasp because it's out there. So we're not necessarily imagining, but we we've got it there working and people are using it. So could yes. you tell us a bit more about how that came about? Yes. Yeah, so um, I mean, and, and for us, it's not the only application that is out. Um, uh, we can also talk a little bit about Copilot, which is uh, another application Microsoft has developed. Um, so. Basically, it's an integration of this conversational tool into search. And so um, we have basically integrated uh, an OpenAI model that OpenAI developed into the search engine that is existing in order to support search, um, but with a conversational element that, for example, can summarize um, and, and it will always, um, for example, provide you with sources because we are at, because it's about information and information has to be accurate. So we we have through the application we have certain features and mitigations that sort of tailored to the objectives of what search is about. So we will provide sources so that um, people that use Bing Chat can actually go back to where this is found. Um, it's also different because as it is a search engine, it has not this, um, it, it is not only um, focused on the data within the model, but of course it has this additional function of uh, the search tool itself, which provides you with more updated information like the search generally functions. Okay, that's great. Thank you. I think, I mean, having played around with it a bit, I can see I, there's so many helpful examples where you, for this chat enabled search, and it gives you a kind of more a holistic almost suggestion as opposed to a list of options. So something like, can I have, give me a recipe for a dinner party for people who want to, you know, for under this budget and all the ingredients sourced within 100k, something like that. Brilliant, very helpful. Those kinds of things are easy to verify, and perhaps more crucially, they're okay to get wrong. So it's, it's not a huge risk if that doesn't quite work out. But for me, that I suppose the challenge comes when something being wrong or inaccurate could actually cause harm or detriment, and consumers will be using that search for health advice or financial advice. Um, so how have you anticipated and thought about those challenges? 
fronts and why why we believe, um, I'll probably talk a little bit about the AI Act, that the focus of regulation should really be on the application. Because here you can really think about sort of what are what are the useful and the use cases for which you intend this application to work for and what are the specific risks that that you have. And within the application, you can then build uh, mitigation measures into, into the application layer to, to avoid that. So for example, in the context of health advice, you would, uh, you would wanna make sure that uh, either there is a, is a hard stop in giving advice or list mm -hmm. URLs, but give advice to go to see a, a specialist. So there, you could, you could basically train uh, and, and tailor the application in order to avoid these types of risks. Okay, so that I, yeah, I see what you're saying. So if the, the, the person deploying it could put in some safeguard and to, to make sure it's used responsibly. But of course, once this is out the bag, there'll be lots of plenty of providers who won't be so interested in that. Um, so Daniel, I just wanted to, I wanted to come to you because I think there's been some emphasis on people learning how to use the tool well and how to ask the right questions. But is that possible? Yeah, th this has been something that keeps coming back to me recently because, um, you know, I've been chatting to people and colleagues in the digital rights community who maybe haven't been following the large language model discussion, but would be pretty technologically savvy. And I find that the barrier to understanding why they, especially why they fail in the way that they do, uh, is quite high. Um, you know, I was even asked a question like, why, why was ChatGPT designed to produce false information? And, you know, it wasn't designed to do that. It was, wasn't really designed to do much more than predict the next word in a sequence. And now there's kind of a scramble to figure out, you know, business applications. Um, you know, there's all of this VC funding flowing into generative AI. So it's a little bit like, it was being developed, you know, not for specific applications and it showed some interesting emergent properties and then we're trying to sort of wrangle it into specific use cases, but it it tends to work in ways that are maybe a bit at odds with that. Um, you know, as we've said, like kind of recommending people books that don't exist um, and things like that. And I think if you, we've seen it explode so far beyond uh you know the tech kind of savvy community a lot of people are using it uh who wouldn't be familiar with uh the technological side of it and i think the objectivity that people associate with the term artificial intelligence will really disarm people in a problematic way you know one of the things that uh, large language models are really not good at is arithmetic um, and that's something that the general public would assume that they are good at so they will probably take at face value numbers that are given back, whereas because of the way that they work, uh, it's actually extremely likely that anything that they do involving figures, mathematics is going to be wrong. And, and mm. I think if there's barriers like that that we're going to have to deal with. Mm. That's really interesting. Like when you follow the Google map, even though you know it's not the route you take and you know it's not quickest. Um, Colin, I'm sure you've got something to say on that, studying how consumers um, you know, might might react to the to what's being presented to them. 
Yeah, it's it's um, it's a tricky issue, isn't it? I, I think, and I feel actually a bit conflicted about it. And it would do quite a lot of work in the area of misinformation, conspiracy theories, and um, and trying to look at the way in which people um, uh, the the nature of belief in this space and and how that works. And and I think that contrary to popular what can feel like popular opinion i think people are quite often quite good at sifting through stuff and they I, simply because people are doing something or working with something and receive in receipt of some information or even when they share it doesn't necessarily mean that they're absolutely signed up to it and fully believing in it you know i think people are often pretty good at having a somewhat sort of skeptical take on the information that they're receiving and they're not necessarily um uh, going to you know sort of absolutely sort of um uh signed up to what the what 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 the outcomes are um on the other hand, I think that in, in, in to the to the point we were just hearing, um, there is a degree of kind of um, reverence and uh, deference to information um, that is uh, supplied by certain sources, and I would agree the term AI does tend to suggest a certain um, level of um, uh, assume a certain level of quality and 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 humanness in the in the nature of um, what it is. Um, I I suspect that what we're going to be seeing are new norms being developed because look at how the conversations just changed so much in the last couple of months. I was relieved that this was sort of not two months ago, in fact, because actually an awful lot is coming out and, and, and being sort of discussed. And I think some of those conversations are going to go into the wider population and people are going to start getting a, a sense of when can you use it? When can you rely on it? When can't you rely on it? But at the same time, we're all very aware, and this is of, of the way in which, of course, um, information is available online, which people find hard to discriminate. And inevitably, there's going to be, have to be some discussion, that there is discussion about how do we go about managing that, because we can't put too much emphasis, we can't put on individuals to do all that mm. work. They need support to do this. So it's quite a nuanced picture of how people a go about navigating this and the help which they will need to do that mm. yeah I agree and I think we probably need to think a lot more quite differently about what digital skills or digital literacy means because what you're suggesting is is a very different way of, of, of seeing it and 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 getting over almost like the emotional and the reverence you have for, for machines um I'm we're avoiding actually we're thinking about what could go wrong accidentally but we were kind of avoiding this big issue that there could be some very malicious people using it for nefarious purposes um alexander you'd like to come in on that i think yeah <clears throat> i mean we leave it to the journalists to discuss all the horrible things the that horrible stuff yeah. go wrong right with, with this um no but my with my background as someone who's been following the 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 uh, you know uh, governments and countries and, and individuals who have uh, malign intent and who have used um, the online sphere at least and social media etc for malign influence I I, you know, I kind of have a have this feeling uh, you know it's a gut feeling for now but I'm pretty sure I'll, I I might be proven right soon enough that this will make their lives and their jobs a lot more easier because instead of having to for instance if you're Russia. Um, instead of having to hire these uh, 
so-called um, you know, uh, bot farms or what have you, of people who, who, who paid intentionally to create articles or content, social media content to um, you know, either spread this information or to create outrage or to create hate, et cetera, et cetera. Now you have a nifty tool and it doesn't have to be chat GPT. Like, let's, let's, let's not, you know, uh, mm -hmm. demonize it uh, or demonize that name outright. It can be some kind of a, you know, a version of it or a, a different product altogether that does the same thing that you could use or that could have been created by those same governments or, you know, uh, people close to them or organizations, companies close to them. Uh, that you can then use to create all of this content uh, just to, you know, flood the information space with all, all, all these terrible things that we've been fighting against for so many, diff so many years through different means through, like you mentioned, you know, insistence on critical thinking and education, um, what have you, digital uh, literacy uh, programs, fact-checking, debunking, et cetera, et cetera. It, and, and now that there's a possibility that a machine could take this over, and do the dirty work for someone. I mean, without any <laughs> blame to it per se, uh, it, it kind of creates, it makes me wonder, you know, we've been talking about what happens if a benevolent user comes to, um, you know, chat GPT or something like it. But we haven't really thought about what happens when a malicious user comes to it mm. with, with, with a question, a query, a demand, uh, et cetera, mm. et cetera. And, and this is something that we really need to take into account, especially when we talk about regulation, how we're going to regulate yeah. Uh, yeah. tools like ChatGPT. Yeah, no, that, that's really that's really good. Um, yeah, it made me think of someone giving the example of, you know, give me some, can, could you write me a list of anti-vaccination um, myths in a very convincing style of the WHO? So just like a really basic example of how some of these large language models could be made to copy styles and, and content. Um, what's coming through a lot on the comments and which I know has got everybody thinking is this idea of students um, and writing their essays at the, the touch of a button. That's really got people worried, probably parents in particular, um, students maybe not so much. Um, so, I mean, plagiarism has been around for a while, but this does feel different. And Daniel, I wanted to bring you in because um, I think there's a few solutions that are emerging quite quickly now, such as, was it watermarking? Um, do you think that kind of verification can help? Yeah, what, one observation I'd just like to share on this is that sure. AI has been used in the education sector for years to surveil students. And the moral <laughs> panic only happened when a solution came along that students could use uh, <laughs> themselves. So I thought that was interesting. Um, but yeah, as you say, uh, technical solutions are coming thick and fast and not very good so far to detect the outputs um, of these models. Uh, you know, there's been various detection software touted, but it's, it seems to not have a very high success rate. Um, watermarking, as you mentioned, um, you know, we all know the kind of classic photo watermarking where there's a physically visible sign on a photo or something. This would be more kind of embedded, uh, <clears throat> you know, using um, hashes and things like that so that maybe OpenAI would be able to detect if a piece of content was generated by one of their models. So it wouldn't be visible necessarily to a user, um, but they would be able to do that. I think, you know, when it comes to solution or to problems that are getting people really worried, like students using the software like this to cheat, 
that's potentially interesting as a solution. The other thing it's it's interesting for is that uh, there's a real threat of the internet actually being flooded with kind of quite mediocre AI generated content. And that that actually going in to train the next generation mm -hmm. of models, making it more mediocre. And, you know, that's a risk. And so I think some of these companies are looking at watermarking actually so that the generated content doesn't go into the training data for their okay. own models, mm -hmm. which was a, a great uh, piece in the New Yorker about this, where Ted Chang said that if it's not good enough for the next generation of models, it's probably not good enough for us. Um, but if anything like watermarking comes in, we'd we'd want to see it done in the most privacy-preserving way possible. You know, we just want the minimal amount of information to be contained in anything like that to say that something is AI-generated. Um, you know, if you start getting into things like timestamps, uh, location, device type, and things being um, included in any of these sort of methods, that could pose serious uh, privacy risks. Yeah, no, and yeah, sure. No, I think that's a good point. And again, it's the the idea that we, you know, there is technology and ideas and innovations out there to solve or respond to things, but they then create another raft or, or ripple of, of other challenges which really need to be thought about. Um, I just want, just before we leave this and look at how it might be regulated, I did, from with my consumer head, I want to think about how it might lead to a rise in scams and frauds and things like that. Um, I mean, as well as some more positive consumer cases. So I heard the example of someone who'd asked, um, I think it was ChatGPT, to, to write them an appeal against a parking fine in a very convincing, um, persuasive manner, and they had their fine revoked. So I think we can't really ignore that this can also empower people with who may not be able to access that style of writing or that persuasive capacity to, to get good outcomes. But then my mind also goes to how it might lead to a rise in scams, particularly long-term ones, which rely on creating dialogues like romance scams. Um, so Colin, is that a question of, this comes from a question of like, how can we tell what's real or fake? And if we're going into a world where it, we just, we're just much less certain about what's real and or fake. What do you, what's your take on that? I think to some extent, this isn't a new issue that the human race has got to unpack, right? You know, so it's a, so I think that we've always had the, 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 the challenge of, look, is someone being genuine and authentic or are they lying and sort of pulling a fast one? And, and of course that issue has been around some, you mm. know, throughout history. Um, you know, obviously what we've got here then is a situation whereby this has been delivered in a particular um, you know, digital mechanism, and, and obviously we're using that to navigate our lives. Um, and so uh, what are, I go back to the point I think I was, I'd make earlier on, is like, mm. well, what are the kind of cues, the signals, the customs and practices that we'll be developing to be able to filter this stuff? Because mm. that's, I think that's the, that's the challenge. And, and I don't, and, and, People, I think that people will need some guidance and help, um, but I think also over time um, it will become readily apparent um, what the what the sort of guardrails are as people experience them and as people find problems, and of course as people find that you know the areas where they're not problems and, and is really helpful and so on. So you know we 
we're pretty resourceful as, a, as humans and we're pretty smart to be able to un, unpick these things. So I just be, a, I don't, I'm, I'm a, I, I, you know, on the one hand, sure, people need help, people need support, and there will always be vulnerable people who, who will be, who, who, who can come to harm. I'm just a bit wary about too much of a moral panic around um, mm. the, the, um, the, 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 the challenges here, because I think it will become apparent where the, where the problem spaces are and I yeah. think we'll be able to start to be able to navigate them. Yeah I hope so. Um, I feel like it's a bit of a mass experiment isn't it and maybe some people who've grown yeah. up with high tech have already been <laughs> through enough of those but maybe that, that that's the, that's the world that we're living in. Um, possibly sounding a little optimistic but... Yeah. <laughs> Optimism is good. I think what we're seeing through the comments is a mix of like you know this is the future let's not let risks hold us back and versus some more, some more people people on the side of no we really need to put some things around to mitigate harms which brings us very nicely into the next section where we're going to spend about 10 minutes or so looking at the things that could help mitigate some of the risks and the release of the the models such as google's bard and alibaba's ernie announcement and chat gpt all coincide with the final stage of negotiations of the eu ai act um, so I'm going to bring in Gabriele here. Now, we don't have time to do the full length coverage of the Act, um, but we do want to understand a bit more about it, particularly as it's one of the first of its kind in the world to take the horizontal approach. Um, so should we start with the definition? Now, obviously, a definition is really important because that determines the whole scope of the regulation. So can you talk us through the, the definition that the Act uses? and how that relates to, to generative technologies. And I think- Yes, sure. Um, to help you and to- um, Yeah. Visual aid as well. If you, if you could, great, thanks go. a lot. Yes, indeed. Um, I think that's a great point because um, um, the sometimes, you know, there is, there is a discussion about, you know, what is this new generative AI? Is it regulated? Is it not regulated? Is it including the AI act or not? And I think it's going to be helpful a, a bit to, to see the context of, of the definition of AI, which you see now on the screen, which was largely inspired by the OECD definition. So the OECD definition is what you see on the right-hand side, and on the left-hand side, you see the definition they have. And you see that the effort we made at the time, primarily because we wanted the definition of AI in the EU to be aligned as much as possible at the international level, to make sure indeed we, we have also an alignment of concepts with, with international rules that we, so we took as a basis the OECD definition, but we made some changes. Uh, first of all, because the OECD definition was contained in actually in a policy document is this council recommendation on AI, whereas the AI Act is actually a, a legal document. And so it was important to, to make some annotations there, uh, but also because coming a bit to the topic of our discussion today, we also felt there was something missing. Uh, if you see indeed, when we say that uh, AI is, uh, can generate for a given set of objectives, outputs such as we added content. And you see predictions, recommendations, and decisions was already there, but we specifically added content because we felt uh, indeed this was ele an element that was missing. Uh, and notably we were thinking at the time about generative AI, for instance, in the context of uh, generating deep fakes or, or fakes of audio videos. Um, and for that, indeed, we also uh, introduced specific rules. Um, 
I don't know, uh, Liz, if you want me to go straight into the, the yeah, debate. let's talk about yeah, let's talk about that because it takes a risk-based approach, right? Right, exactly. So with that, we mean that indeed, um, basically conceptually, the AI Act um, doesn't want to regulate the technology as such. So AI, as we saw it defined as such, but more, we want to focus on certain specific use cases, depending on the risk. So in those cases where we think uh, the risk posed by the AI is unacceptable, then we foresee a prohibition. These are the cases that are listed in, in Article 5, like for instance, uh, social scoring. Then there are the cases that pose sort of high risk uh, for, for health and fundamental rights. And those, the regulation foresees a need to comply with certain requirements. So the AI system needs to comply with certain requirements. And there is an obligation to do a conformity assessment. So before the system is put on the market by the manufacturer, by the provider, it has to ensure that the system complies with those requirements. And then there's the third category of risk, so to say, uh, the one that is in the, in the yellow bandwidth, uh, where essentially the risk posed by the specific system identified there um, pose a sort of transparency risk. So risk related to the lack of disclosure of the system. And, and here we have again a bit uh, the link with the, the generative AI in the sense that um, there are two specific transparency provisions. One applies to uh, chatbots. So essentially when you are interacting with the chatbots, whether it's, it's uh, you know, like ChatGPT or where it could also be on the phone, uh, essentially we foresee that humans need to know that they're interacting with the machine rather than a human. Um, and then the second case is about uh, AI that can generate content in the form of video, image, or sound uh, that may lead person to be deceived. And th in this case as well, uh, we establish an obligation about uh, disclosing the fact that the, the content has been uh, artificially generated. Um, and uh, then, of course, as I mentioned before, there is the discussion about what happens when this type of technology can be used in the context of a high-risk mm -hmm. scenario. So as a component of, a, for instance, let's say a medical device or as a component of a recruitment tool, you may have a, a, a model, a language model, a large language model. And in that case, that falls under, would fall under the discipline of the high-risk um, use cases. Okay, that's great. Thanks very much. We're getting some interesting comments um, with regards to how you might actually define harm. Um, how they may not be able as identifying the harms is quite a challenge. And also a question about um, how the regulations outside of the EU might be influenced, which we might come back to in a bit. Um, we also asked Brando Benife, uh, one of the co-leads on the AI Act in the European Parliament, whether he thought the AI Act was in fact future-proof. Um, and we also asked him, there's a section in the Act which consumer groups are particularly quite concerned about, and that's that the developers of some high-risk technologies will be able to self-certify, so effectively left to mark their own homework to say that their systems are safe. And we asked him whether we thought that was enough, given the, the disruption that such a technology could cause. So let's just hear what he has to say, and then we'll come back to some more comments on the, on the regulation. One wonders these days whether the AI Act will be able to stand the test of time and technological evolution. The hope is obviously yes, 
despite the fact that in a few years' time we will probably be using even more advanced technologies or technology that does not even exist yet. One thing is certain, precisely in order to prevent any kind of risk and uncontrolled evolution, why, this is why we are pushing for a fundamental rights impact assessment for all users of AI. Miraculous technologies will increase in power and scope, as will the risk uh, they pose. And the first ones to have to deal with them are the users, who have a greater grasp of the concrete situation where they operate um, than uh, the end users themselves. With regard to self-assessment, it's clear that it, it is not ideal, but even the idea of having a third party check every case for every case of high-risk AI would not be without problems, including compliance costs. However, we have seen this need for biometric recognition in the absence of shared standards. Moreover, while other high-risk systems may proceed with self-assessment, the Commission may, in consultation with the AI office and stakeholders, modify these procedures where they are not effective. However, I'm confident that market competition will push companies to not want to cheat by seeking third-party certificates and seals of approval even where not necessary in order to win the trust of consumers. I believe that they, there can be a fair compromise between safety requirements and market entry. This is what we are working on. Okay, so, I mean, optimistic there about the future, future proofing the Act by basing on the fundamental rights approach, but Daniel, you've been following the Act. Are you hopeful that it could rein in some of the worst potential excesses of, of AI? Uh, I mean, that's a tricky question. Um, and, you know, it goes quite broad. A lot of our work has been focused on prohibiting very problematic forms of artificial intelligence, like biometric, remote biometric identification, like facial recognition in public spaces. Mm. Um, more narrowly, on uh, generative AI, uh, I, I think the the Parliament needs to be brave uh, and needs to you know not be afraid to to you know put down real measures that that are going to protect people and and yeah uh, go into the the trilogue negotiations with a very very strong position and, and stand by it. Um, the, unfortunately, I think the, the worst excesses will not be fully contained, uh, you know, stopped ex ante by the AI Act. But one of the things that the AI Act does is it provides a lot of transparency, or at least it should do. And we've been advocating for, there's a database under Article 60 that would show us what's on the market in the EU. We've been asking for that to be expanded to also show uh, where those things are being used. And as a civil society organization, a lot of the work that we and our partners have to do is find out if AI is even being used in the first place. So if the AI Act can at least increase transparency, um, as Brando Benefei mentioned, uh, mandate fundamental rights impact assessments for people deploying AI, we'll increase the paper trail, we'll have more transparency, and maybe we'll be able to rein in the excesses after the fact with a lot less legwork from civil society, uh, investigative journalists, etc. So the work definitely won't stop and the harms won't stop, I think, when the AI Act is finalised, but hopefully it will give us much more ammunition uh, in the battle to protect people. Great. Thanks, Daniel. Cornelia, do you want to come in on this? Yeah, I think uh, I'd, I'd like to just give a little bit of Microsoft perspective on this. So first of all, we have been embracing um, the, the path to regulation 
Microsoft is uh, and has over the last couple of years developed uh, our own self-regulatory standard um, because we think we have the responsibility to, to do so, but also in anticipation of the norms that are globally now developed. Um, and there are a couple of things I think that will happen with the AI Act. Um, the, the, the way uh, it, it is focused also on standards uh, will increase um, the, the use of these standards that are currently in parallel developed. And I think once you, you start using those to fulfill the requirements, um, you, you will, you, there, there will be more of incentives to do this um, beyond the high risk obligations, um, but without eventually the, the overall regulatory oversight. Um, and um, so the risk-based approach is really important also to, to enable companies to continue to, to use this technology in high value but low risk scenarios and there are plenty of those so i think that that is sort of the balance that the ai act was trying to strike um it the cheap chat gpt and and bing chat comes in a very interesting place because now we are suddenly um in this space where this is much more consumer facing as well so i think there are there, there are ways to to um, look at the at the transparency obligations across the stack to improve those uh, and and considerations around this are still discussed and we would support this too. But I also want to point out that the AI Act is not the only tool through which AI is regulated. I mean, AI is a technology. So we'll see a GDPR is, 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 is of course, when you think about privacy protections, uh, they, they have to be applied to AI technology. The yep. Digital Services Act equally uh, has, has provisions in there that uh, require companies to, to think about uh, how they apply to, for example, recommender systems, which largely yeah. on, on AI. So it's the, the AI Act is not the only tool that sort of is a rec in, within this regulatory framework that sure. we'll see. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's a jigsaw puzzle of different regulations, isn't it? Um, very quickly, Gabriele, you um, have you got anything to, to comment on the territoriality aspect of it? Yeah, sure. Just quickly, just to say that uh, the AI Act is, is an internal market legislation. So that means it applies to the AI systems that are, um, say, um, placed on the market and used in the EU, in the EU market. But it applies regardless of where the providers are coming from. So it only applies to, say, the manufacturers of AI system that are based in the EU. It also applies to manufacturers of AI system that are based uh, outside the EU, but still want to bring their product to the EU market. So it's a classic approach of yep. product legislation that uses uh, applies the same rules to any manufacturer. Sure. Okay. Okay. I can't believe it. We're into the last five minutes. Um, it's. I feel like we could really talk about all these different aspects we've discussed in, in their own 
conference even. Um, but we're going to turn to everyone now for some final reflections um, on what these advanced technologies might mean for them personally or for their sector. So I asked Brando Benife if lawmakers like himself will be out of a job now if generative AI is able to write regulations for itself. So let's hear what he had to say about that. I've been asked whether AI will one day write laws for us. A few months, it seems that Meta's AI was able to win at the game on diplomacy, like an experienced uh, diplomatic person or even a lobbyist. Here, I personally hope that this substitution does not happen, and I'm not saying this out of fearing of losing any job in the public sphere, uh, or because I think the decisions made by humans are, are uh, better necessarily, but because I believe that in any field the ultimate responsibility uh, must always lie with humans. Already in recent weeks, in the debate on JGPT, two fronts have opposed each other. One that wants to ban it from schools, to prevent students from using it to take tests, the others that already sees the future, new courses to teach students to use it to help them in their studies, to ask the right questions and improve the results of their research, while remaining aware that those answers will always have to be verified. Here, I'm more of the second school, I mean, uh, if I can use this game of words. It will help them to do better and faster, but with supervision, transparency and therefore knowledge needed to do it. That will always be human. And I also say this in, um, in uh, the interest of all the stakeholders, that uh, we still need them to, to discuss with us uh, directly. In, in conclusion, I would like to make it clear that no one would want to regulate uh, um, the future per se, but the risks have become so great and technology so cheap and so uh, pervasive that it would be irresponsible to prevent uh, uh, otherwise. So that's why we are focusing on having a um, human-centered AI that can uh, stand the changes happening around us and then can spread trust. Trust in technology, trust in protections, trust in a future society where there will not be um, intransparent control or uh, forms of exploitation through the, these evolutionary technologies. I think we are uh, on the right track and this is also thanks to the continuous exchange and debate with all the stakeholders like you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to launch these uh, little inputs and uh, I hope to see you all soon and continue our discussions. Thank you very much. There's Brando from his, what looks like a busy hotel or conference that he's at. Um, I'm going to ask everyone very quickly now to give their reflections. Alexander, you said earlier that you didn't think you'd be out of a job. Um, why do you think that? Sure. Uh, you said that just as my light here died out. So um, maybe that's an, that's an omen. Um, no, I, I don't think I'll be out of, a, out, of, out of a job. That's for sure. I mean, first of all, it took us, this is, this is, um, this is something that's still developing. And so we're still kind of trying to learn to, adopted in our daily lives to live with it and, and we obviously panels like this one are quite good because we get to debate all kinds of possibilities and what ifs and but also discuss legislation as we have and and why that's important and future why future proofing for instance is important uh why i'm not going to be out of a out of a job uh is uh because journalism still really and i think always will will depend on the human factor um just in brief, you know, nothing can really replace, for now, nothing can really replace some, a journalist, a reporter who is on site. No, nothing can really replace the kind of human connection that we make when we talk to our sources, the, 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 you know, 
long-standing relationship that you build with experts uh, in their particular fields and, and uh, even politicians or your, you know, every, it depends on which, which sector of journalism you're, you're working in. But uh, all of that, again, requires a human being and will most likely always require a human being on both, both ends. So uh, I personally think that all things considered, chat gpt and other tools will only help us get better at what we do um but as long as we like i said earlier do not abuse them for any kind of malicious uh, malicious malicious stuff okay <laughs> thanks very much colin are you worried about your job i think i think that there's a sort of long history of using uh software tools in the work which we do and this is a this is a sort of latest interesting um uh example in a long line of those and so therefore i think things will get moved around and and um i can i i think there's plenty of opportunities to apply this however i you know, one of the things which i always bore my colleagues with is this um and and more junior sort of uh, colleagues is saying look the real challenge isn't really isn't always answering the question but it's knowing knowing what question to ask in the first place and that i think is where we will uh, increasingly find ourselves um in this environment knowing what questions to ask and that's the difficult bit which i don't think it will really actually answer help us with that's a that's a very good answer thank you and gabriele do you think um something like chat gpt could just could write your briefing paper or do your research well, you i think uh, <laughs> i think it did, we did a lot of drafting with the AI act and i think at the time i think perhaps it could have been helpful to to have a first draft uh, i cannot deny that but i but no really the point is what colin has just said i think our core job is to really you know solving problems. And so first we have to identify the problem and, and sort of find the right solution by asking the right question. So certainly can be a great tool, and but I, I honestly can't see that replacing me, uh, at least in the short term. <laughs> good, good. I'm glad everyone's optimistic about this. Um, Daniel, just going to come to you for the last comment um, and maybe a bit of a wider reflection. What do these advanced large language models mean for the digital rights movement? So for people like you who are trying to um trying to, to to bring in responsible ethical technologies what's your priority right now uh they mean a lot more work so we definitely won't be out of a job we think we probably need to hire another person <laughs> um no but i think they they continue to create obvious opportunities but uh definitely new risks and you know they are increasing in complexity that requires a lot of work uh, myth-busting, debunking, uh, explaining, uh, and ensure, you know, even investigating what the impacts and harms are. So, you know, we often say that our aim as an organization is that we shouldn't have to exist anymore if we do our jobs right. But I think uh, with these technologies, uh, we'll be in work for quite a long time uh, defending people's rights. Yeah, good to hear. And I know that you're working closely as well with with corporates and industry and that there's lots of stakeholder engagement from the commission with microsoft etc so that's great okay thanks to all of you alexander colin cornelia daniel and gabriele and brando um down the line um, and thanks everyone who's been listening it's been really in i wish i could have read all the comments in detail but i could see there's some really interesting stuff coming through thanks for we're collating all the comments um we think we have enough to run another webinar later in the year and hone in on some of the issues. Start Talking from Euroconsumers happens every month. We've covered the metaverse, crypto, inflation, net neutrality, 
Next month, we'll be start talking, we'll focus on the question of can we be green and digital? Um, and you can stay up to date with, with when that's coming out by following at Euroconsumers on Twitter and LinkedIn, and also to catch up on our latest activities and views and blogs, etc. So it just leaves me to say thank you so much to everyone for your participation. It's been fantastic and have a good rest of the day.